Welcome. I'm Father Mitch Paquin. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture through the lens of apostolic tradition, but also we're going through scripture with a special focus on being able to pray with the Bible, to pray through the scriptures and enter into it ourselves and to come to know Christ through the Word of God. Now, we'd love to have you be part of the show. You can do so by adding your questions or comments during the live program, which is Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can call in. The number is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, that number will not work, but you can call country code 1, area code 205, 271 So one 205 You can also send us questions or comments by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com, or you can follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now today we're going to look at a number of parables that Jesus spoke in Jerusalem right after Palm Sunday. And these parables are concerning the good and the wicked members of the church, how they exist side by side, but will eventually be judged. We also want to talk about why Jesus allows it to be this way, at least for now. We are going through a book that I wrote called Wheat and Tares. Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can get that book at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com and it is item number 81098. 81098. All right. So, let's start off. You know, uh, by the way, you should be able to know that if you miss any of the past Scripture and Tradition shows, you can go back and watch them on our website, ewtn.com. You can also go to our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash ewtn. Or you can also get our free app, the ewtn app. It's a free app in the App Store. And you can take a look at uh, archived programs there as well. So let's take a look at the parables in Jerusalem that our Lord spoke about good and bad members of the church. If you remember, our Lord entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We, in the uh, Catholic Church, we just celebrated Palm Sunday just over a week ago, and this past Sunday was the celebration of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, I should have greeted you all today with, uh, you know, Messiah, come, Hakan, come, 
Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. Or the same Greek, Christos Anesti, Alithos Anesti. Normally in the uh, Christian world, they, they don't say things like Happy Easter because Easter is an English word that comes from the fact that the sun rises in the east, so you would face toward the east and toward Jerusalem. But in the Middle East and other parts of the Mediterranean, they just make the announcement, Christ is risen, and the normal response is, he is risen indeed. So that's what we do. But we just celebrated uh, Easter and we celebrated Palm Sunday. And the parables I want us to discuss now are among, they're not all the parables, they're more, but these are key parables that our Lord gave when he was in Jerusalem. There's a series of three parables Uh, The first is in Matthew 22, um, uh, verses uh, 1 to 7. Um, And these are addressing a very important issue, uh, very important in our time as it was in our Lord's time, namely, lack of faith in Jesus, lack of believing that what he said is true, and a lack of trust. In Jesus. This is what he's trying to deal with. Um, And the third of those parables is this one here in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them in parables again in saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the marriage feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, behold, I have made ready my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves are killed and everything is ready, come to the marriage feast. But they made light of it and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, notice that the king invited people to his son's wedding feast twice. Um, It's something you have to keep in mind that a wedding feast was a very important event in uh, the the ancient world. And this is something that when a king invites you, you are the one who is honored by being invited to this banquet. And rejection of the opportunity was something that was shocking. You know, people would have just been amazed that people said uh, no to a king and said no twice. First they said no, and then they gave excuses, and some of them even killed the king's servants. Now, this is uh, a very uh, 
awful kind of thing to do, that you put your personal affairs, uh, looking at a farm and taking a look at your business, and then going even further and doing violence to the king's messengers. This would have been uh, something so horrible. Anybody in the Middle East would have expected any king to punish those who rejected the invitation. And this is a very serious kind of situation. But here's the other side of it. Their failure to accept the king's invitation also becomes a new opportunity for other people. Since they reject the call and commit crimes as a way to you know, avoid going to the king's son's wedding, other people get invited. So it says in 22, Matthew 22, verses 8 through 12, Then the king said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the thoroughfares and invite to the marriage feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now, this is something that also becomes important. Now, all these people are invited. And... Yet, even though they're uh, invited, there is still a concern for their proper righteousness, that they have to, you know, be righteous. And that righteousness is symbolized by the proper wedding garments. And the king himself personally addresses the failure of the one guest to come clothed in a proper wedding garment. He doesn't just tell his servants to do it. No, he goes and deals with it as well. Now, what's the meaning of this wedding garment? As is usually the case, we need to take a look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament always is the background to the Gospels. Our Lord cited the Old Testament. In fact, throughout the whole New Testament, the, Old, uh, the New Testament, the Old Testament is cited by the New 360 times. So it's obviously very important. So we need to go look there. Now, the first place I would look is Psalm 132, verse 9. There in the psalm it says, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. So here there is this sense of righteousness being uh, like a garment that you put on. 
And then we also see another passage in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, which says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So this is something that we see in the Old Testament that the clothing people have is that of righteousness and salvation. And so given that background, it would make very good sense to understand that this man has come into the wedding feast of God without wearing righteousness and salvation. Now, righteousness and salvation are gifts from God, and he doesn't put that gift on. He doesn't wear that. And so this is why he's left speechless. He could have. And we see also in the New Testament that there are some passages that pick up on this, especially in the book of Revelation. So it says, for instance, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, he who conquers shall be clad thus in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. So pay attention to that, that they'll put on white garments. That's one of the reasons from this passage that when people are baptized, they put on a white garment. It's to show that you are choosing to join the redeemed. And then you also see in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, Therefore I counseled you to buy for me gold refined by fire that you may be rich, and white garments to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. So again, you put on these white garments that are you know, there symbolizing salvation, as in the Old Testament. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clad in white garments with golden crowns upon their heads. And also in Revelation 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no man could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And similarly, Revelation 7, verse 13, it says, the one, then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and whence have they come? So in all those passages, the people around God's throne are wearing these garments, these white garments. And then 
in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And in 1914, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. So this all points to heaven as the wedding feast of the Lamb of God. And the people there wearing these white garments that are gifts from God, symbolizing salvation and righteousness. That's what the man was missing. And if we take a look a little bit further, we see that in Galatians 3, 27 to 28, it speaks about baptism. And take, pay attention to this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And the word to put on Christ is the same word for putting on a garment. So ultimately, the robe of salvation, the robe of righteousness is putting on Jesus Christ. You wear him. And this is what happens in baptism. This is one of the reasons why it makes me so sad that so many parents today do not baptize their child. They are not letting their children be clothed in Christ. And it's oftentimes because they don't focus on Jesus Christ. They're focused on other issues. And so they don't baptize their children. But the point of baptism is to put on Christ. So anyway, we go back to the passage where you had the people who were clothed with the wedding garment, the, the white linen of salvation and righteousness, that clothing of Christ. And this one man is not clothed that way. So in Matthew 22, verse 13, the king said to the, the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So this is something where our Lord warns that many people will come into the church together. See, that's, that's the point of this. The ones who will put on Christ, but also some who don't put on Christ. They all come into the church. But when it comes time to actually celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven, those who have not put on righteousness and have not put on salvation, they have not put on Jesus Christ through baptism, they will be kicked out and sent to hell. That's what this wailing and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness of hell refers to. And we have to be aware, as it's said in the text, the good and the bad were invited, but the bad cannot stay at the wedding feast of the Lamb. The king 
will not let them remain at his son's wedding feast. And this, you know, even if a priest or a bishop is wearing beautiful vestments, that will not matter if he has not put on Christ and salvation and righteousness. That is a spiritual decision God can see when the rest of us cannot. And that will be the basis for the judgment that he makes. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back and deal with the next parable, so please stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, we're continuing to talk about our Lord's parables in Jerusalem between Palm Sunday and uh, Holy Thursday uh, in the Gospel. And, you know, we see, we're not going to go into it, but our Lord uh, did give as his last public statement seven woes against the Pharisees. Now remember, his public teaching began with the eight Beatitudes. Now, this is like a bookends, the seven woes. Woe is something that you say to a person who is doomed. And so Beatitude is one choice, and at the end of his public ministry, woes. You have to make a choice between following him and receiving the Beatitudes or going against him and being filled with certain destruction and woe. Okay? So that's what that's going on. And then after that, he's with his disciples and he uh, teaches them about the end of the world in, beginning in Matthew 24. And at the end of that, there's a series of parables about the final judgment. So we'll take a look at these, these parables. There, uh, there are, I think, four of, them, four of them. So the first one of these is in Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51. And this is a parable that is addressed to the leaders of the church. That's one of the things you need to understand. Uh, he begins with a rhetorical question in Matthew 24, 24, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? So that's the question our Lord asks his disciples. And it, like any other rhetorical question, uh, it kind of implies its own answer. Um, first of all, a servant, being a servant of our Lord 
is a very important thing to remember, that a servant has to be faithful to his master. And therefore, the Lord's servant has to be faithful to the Lord. That's going to be the most basic quality of a servant who is in charge of the household. And by the household, he means the church, that the church is God's household. And this is the kind of servant leaders that Christ leaves behind in the church as he ascends into heaven. Now, when he uh, speaks to this uh, servant, he also wants them to be wise, not only faithful, but wise. And there are different words for wisdom. One is the theoretical wisdom known as Sophia, like in philosophy. And you know people whose name, my great-grandmother was named Zosha, which is the Polish version of Sophia. Um, and that means wisdom. And philosophy means a love of wisdom. That's more theoretical kind of wisdom. But the word here is not Sophia and Sophos. Um, it's rather phronimos. Phronimos is a Greek word that refers to practical wisdom. You know how to run the household. So it's not the kind of wisdom you'd expect from a professor of philosophy or some other area, but rather the practical wisdom of how you actually run the church, the household. So that's what he's looking for, faithful and wise. And then in verse 25, Jesus called them to him and said, um, you know, so this is, uh, by the way, the, the, something that he talked about for his servants earlier in the gospel in uh, Matthew 20, uh, verse 25 to 28. He says to uh, people, the, the apostles back then, Jesus called the apostles to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So being a leader in the kingdom of God means being a servant for the other members of the church. And here we see in Matthew 24, verse 46, he continues explaining uh, the answer to his rhetorical question. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. That the servant is someone who will, um, uh, the master sets over the household to give them their food at the proper time. 
Now, for the leaders of the church, this will be a very important thing, that they are there to help take care of folks. And we see in the early church in the New Testament and forward, the church helped to take care of orphans, widows, and the poor, the imprisoned, and uh, the other people in need. But also, the servant leaders of the church made sure that the church was fed. And as it says in the Vatican II document, the Constitution on the Liturgy, there are two tables at which we priests are to feed the congregation. The first table where we feed our people is the lectern, where the Word of God is. We feed people the Word of God because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. So we priests have to feed and nourish with explanation and teaching about God's Word. Secondly, the table of sacrifice, the altar, where we feed our people with the body and blood of Christ. That's also where we feed them. So that's what he's supposed to do. And it's uh, very important for the servant leaders of the church to feed the physical needs, doing this, the, the corporal works of mercy, and the spiritual works of mercy, and especially for the priests and bishops to teach the scriptures as they are. You don't add or subtract. And then you also give people the body of Christ. You present that to those who are capable of receiving it because of their baptism and because of living in the state of grace. Now we see a contrast, though, our Lord has a stark contrast. You know, who is the wicked and foolish servant? If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunken. So this is one of the things that's also possible. Some of the serpents, uh, see, serpents some of the servants can be wicked. And when they are wicked and are getting drunk and using the master's goods for their own selfishness and their own pleasure, it says in 24 verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will punish him and put him with the hypocrites where men will weep and gnash their teeth. Now, the punishment that he mentions here, in, they say punish in English, but the word that is used in that passage means to cut somebody in two pieces. Now, that's punishment. But it's not just meant to be cruel. Cutting somebody in two pieces was the specific kind of punishment going back to the time of Abraham, that if you broke a covenant, you were cut into pieces. That's what the servants who are unfaithful and wicked will receive because they've broken the question, they've broken the covenant with the Lord. And for that, 
they will be punished when he returns. And what everybody has to remember is what our Lord said in, a little bit earlier, Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Watch therefore. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Most of us do not know the day of our death. Very few people know the day they're going to die. Prisoners on death row are told that. They are told that. That's a punishment to know the day of your death. The rest of us, in God's mercy, do not know. But we always have to be ready. And leaders of the church, as well as all the members of the church, have to be ready so that when the Lord comes and he comes to judge us, we can present ourselves as those faithful and wise servants who have used all the gifts that God has given us for his greater glory. All right, we'll stop there and we'll come back in uh, you know, next week to continue taking a look at these parables. What I'd like to do is now go over to a question from our studio audience. Let's start off with this gentleman. Sir, where are you from? Yes, Father, I'm from uh, Jacksonville, North Carolina. Good to have you here. Welcome, welcome. And what can we do for you today? Father, I wanted to ask the question. I understand that uh, when uh, we die, uh, that we fall asleep in that of Christ. And if we fall asleep in Christ, he says the, day, the last day he will pull us all up to be into the uh, heaven or where the place where he's prepared for us to be. Mm -hmm. That's confusing to me. Mm -hmm. So what, I'm to sleep and not go to heaven until he calls on me? Or yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of confusing there. Okay, let's, let's clarify that a little bit. You know, sometimes people talk about dying. And talking about, talking about dying in regular conversation is often uncomfortable, Right? A lot of people don't like to speak about it. And so in every language that I know, people have different idioms for dying. You can say, kick the bucket. Not a nice idiom. That's <laughs> sort of a crude one, right? Uh, or, and it comes from, you know, someone about to be hanged, and they kick the bucket out from under him, and then he hangs. That's not a nice image. Uh, you also can talk about buying the farm. Now, if you say, well, he bought the farm, does that mean he hangs on to the deed until Jesus comes back? No, no. It's an idiom. And the same thing is true with falling asleep. That when you, you know, we oftentimes in more gentle, you know, uh, company will say, oh, uh, he passed away, Right? That's a very common idiom to talk about death. He passed away. 
And uh, in the ancient world, they talked about it as falling asleep. And you see that confusion even in John chapter 11. Remember when Jesus said, Lazarus has fallen asleep. He said, oh, well, he'll be okay because if he had a fever and fall, get some sleep, it means that he's doing better. Our Lord has said, no, no, he died. And that's what falling asleep is. It's an image for dying. But it does, using that idiom to say that you fall asleep does not mean that you are unaware, you're asleep or something until the day Christ comes back. That's not what we see in the Bible. For instance, I urge you to take a look at the epistle, St. Paul's epistle to the Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians 1, he says to die is better because it means I'll be with Christ, but to stay alive is useful for you. So St. Paul makes it clear that if you die, you're with Christ in heaven. And then in the book of Revelation, we read some of those passages from chapter 6 and 7 where the saints who have died are in heaven and they're talking and they're even aware of what's going on on earth. They, they say, how long before you avenge our brothers who are being martyred right now? So this is, uh, it's an idiom for dying, that you're going to die. But it doesn't mean you don't go to heaven. You go to heaven, God willing, uh, <laughs> with your wife sitting right next to you. I'm sure you have all kinds of help uh, to get there. But you, uh, you, know, you, you, you do go to heaven and you're aware of what's going on on earth. And that's what scripture teaches. Okay, so, yeah, but then at the end of time, that's when our bodies are also resurrected. So there's a resurrection of our body. Our bodies and souls are reunited in the resurrection at the end of time. And that's what is different at the end of time. Does that help? Yeah. Okay, well, it's, you just got to... You know, yeah, in, in heaven, for now, your human spirit is there. But at the end of time, your body will be raised and rejoined with your spirit. So you'll be looking at least as good as you are now and maybe even better. I'm hoping, I'm only hoping. Nobody will be on a diet in heaven. Can you imagine? And there's no limit to what you can eat. <laughs> so that's why it's a wedding feast. Those of you who come from ethnic communities that know how to throw a good wedding understand what a great feast it is to have weddings. And that's a, a special meals and you know, the desserts and foods that are for weddings. You get to eat that for all eternity. Not to mention some other things too going on. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a couple minutes, so please stay with us.
might just want to invite you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. for EWTN Live. Uh, that's 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and on EWTN Live, we'll be speaking with Dr. Edward Fazer. Remember, he was on talking about the modern-day atheist industry. Well, now he's dealing with the Catholic Church's very clear and very consistent teaching against racism. But he also deals with the reasons that Catholics should oppose critical race theory, CRT as it's called. This has been invading all aspects of our society and has been fomenting all kinds of class envy and racial hatred, and it is also contrary to our Catholic morals and faith to be racist in any way and to use race as a way to divide people instead of helping them come together at one in Christ. As we read today earlier from Galatians 3, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, uh, Gentile or, or, or well, pagan nor uh, 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 barbarian nor Greek. So these divisions are not part of our way of life. And we want to talk about what is our set of values regarding race. So please stay, uh, join us for that conversation. It should be good. All right, we have another question from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? I am from Antioch, Illinois. Oh, yeah, just right there by the Wisconsin border. Yeah. Nice to have you here. Thank you. What can we do for you? Well, to follow up with my new friend's question, where does purgatory fall in all of the dying and death and all right. Where does purgatory come in? Well, a couple things. Um, not quite everybody, when they die, everybody goes before Christ. Good, bad, and folks who are good but not quite ready for heaven. And some people are not quite ready to be in heaven. You know, their wedding garment might need a little bit more cleaning and ironing. Uh, that, that, and you, th you can think about purgatory as that process by which our Lord purifies us of anything that is impure. Remember what it says at the end of the book of Revelation, that nothing unclean can enter heaven. So if you have resentment or anger at somebody. Now, you may have forgiven them, but every time I remember what they did, it just makes you angry. That has to be cleansed. You can't bring that anger, even the, the, the remnants of that anger, to heaven. If somebody has uh, various sins of lust, you can't bring those to heaven. There's no room for them in heaven. They have to be cleansed. Purgatory refers to the cleansing. That's what, you know, purgation means, right, in English, cleanse. And so though it, purgatory is not a second chance. That's a mistake. Purgatory is only for the redeemed, but for the redeemed who are not quite fully cleansed yet. 
And, you know, I, using my own life as an example, um, I never had any problem with the way the back of my ears looked. But my mother certainly did, and I never liked it when she cleaned behind my ears. I couldn't see it. What's the problem? Well, she could see it, or my grandmother could see it. So they would scrub pretty hard, you know, back behind my ears, uh, asking questions. How did you get dirty over behind your ears? I don't know. Uh, well, until you figure it out and get it cleaned up, you can't go in. <laughs> so that's what's going on there, that final cleansing. Even after I, you know, took my bath, you know, they would still say, get back in there. <laughs> Boys try. <laughs> All right. Let's now go over to Paula in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Paula, what can we do for you? Hello, Father Mitch Pacula. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. What can we do for you today? And um, in the public schools and the health classes, they're teaching that abortion is an option. And I had mm -hmm. talked to the school, and they, um, I said, you know, well, do you teach that that's killing a life? And his answer was, is it? Why, why do people doubt that it is that it's not a life? And like, is there anything that we can do besides prayer? I know to defend, mm -hmm. you know, the lives mm -hmm. of these unborn babies and to help educate our children in the schools. Yep. Um, and real quick, I know like the teachers, they, all this communism and everything, how also they have to be biased, but I mean, also they should be teaching that it's killing a life. Yeah, they should. Well, here, they, I'm going to tell you something that I suspect. They have not got the courage to show what happens in an abortion. They misrepresent abortion by saying, well, it's just a blob of cells. Now, I w if, if I had the chance, and I would say it here, I would challenge them. I would dare them to show the movie The Silent Scream. In this movie, an abortionist trying to train doctors, did an ultrasound of an abortion to show them how to do it. And in that film, you can see that the baby has his hands fisted and he's punching at the knife and kicking at it until they cut his legs off, cut his arms off, and then crush his skull. Now, I would dare them to show that and say this is what is entailed in an abortion. So you have to know that part too. But they haven't got the courage. I will say that here. They don't have the courage to do that because it would undercut everything they say. And that would be one of the things you can do. You can, that's available on the Internet, so you can easily get hold of it and have people take a look at that and then say, yeah, this is what I want to do to an innocent child. I hope they would say no to that once they see it. That's also to see ultrasounds of 
babies in the womb. They're not blobs. They have fingerprints. They have fingers. They have well, everything, you know, within a few weeks. doesn't take long. So this is not a blob. And that's one of the things you can do for the education. All right, let me go to an email that we have from Mary. She says, hi, Father Mitch, an in-law with different beliefs, she's Latter-day Saint or Mormon, recently told me about an article she read concerning Christ on the cross and is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? She said it revealed that it was at this point that Jesus realized it was going to be just him and God was not going to be with him through his crucifixion and that he didn't know that it would be like this. I was caught off guard, but did manage to say that God never abandons us and that I believe he did know and that he was quoting scripture, namely Psalm 22, Psalm 22 verse 1, which she, this Mormon lady, did not know. It seems to me in several conversations Jesus had with the apostles that he indeed knew what lay before him. How could I have better answered this? Well, you did a good job getting started. I would say a couple other things. I would get Psalm 22 out and look at the psalm with your relative, your in-law, and read through it and just take a look at the evidence of the text. And what you will see in uh, Psalm 22, now first of all, you have to keep this in mind. The psalms did not have numbers at the time of Christ. None of the, the, there were no chapters numbered in the Bible until an English monk put the chapter numbers in the 11th century. So the chapters were done by an English monk. And the verses, by the way, were not in the original. The verses were put in 1450s by Gutenberg. He added the verse numbers so that he wouldn't skip any verses when he printed the Bible out. It was just a help to make sure you got the whole Bible. So they, um, they didn't use, say, uh, Psalm 22. They couldn't say that. They would quote the opening line as a way to indicate the whole psalm. And I want you to read that psalm with your relative. And you'll see there that he is pointing out what's happening to him. For instance, right after it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes on, the psalm goes on to say, but Lord, you dwell in the praises of Israel. Furthermore, it mentions that they have pierced my hands and feet. What did that refer to? That was a prophecy of Jesus' hands and feet being pierced by nails. And they have numbered all my bones. That refers to the scourging, where his bones could be seen after the skin was practically pulled off many bones. And then it goes on to say, they have cast lots for my garments. They had divided my garments and cast lots for my cloak. That's exactly what the Roman soldiers did. 
And the Roman soldiers had never read Psalm 22, I'm sure. They wouldn't know Hebrew. They were Romans. And so they were not trying to help fulfill Scripture, but by quoting that psalm and giving the opening title of the psalm, our Lord is pointing out, you see what's happening to me? This fulfills what David said 950 years ago. That's pretty amazing. <clears throat> so it's a prophecy that Christ fulfilled, and that's what you want to emphasize to your friend. And you're right. Jesus predicted his crucifixion three times in each of the four Gospels. So it was no surprise to him. That is a false interpretation. Whoever wrote that article, they were speaking falsely and contrary to the Scriptures. But what I cannot con uh, contradict is the lack of time. We have run out, so may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by His peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, we ask you to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay our bills too. Thank you. Thank you.